I ask you, who is the most important person in your life? Not asking who is it that helps you the most or, or the person that makes you feel the most loved. I'm asking who does your life revolve around? Who is the center of your solar system, if it will? Who is the most important person in your life? And by most important, I don't mean uh, the most vital uh, the one that most things, the most things in your life depend upon. I mean the most important in terms of the most exalted, the most crucial for keeping the world spinning. Maybe, maybe your thoughts on this would be different if, if I were to ask the question of who's the most important being, because it's hard for us to sometimes think of God as a person, having a personality, and we usually think human when we hear person. But certainly, we have to admit that the answer to who is the most important, the most exalted, the most crucial being or person in our lives, we have to admit that the answer is God. How amazing is it that in Christ, we can have a relationship with the most important being in the universe? Sadly, what comes next in our thinking is usually, so how can I get him to do what I need or what I want to be done? This morning we asked the question, who revolves around who? Who revolves around who? In, un in understanding a relationship with God, much of our theology is defined by our answer. Much of our theology is defined by who should revolve around who. Who should be at the center of our solar system, if you will. Who in all of our relationships, in all of our life, should those other people, those other experience, uh, situations, those, those other scenarios... Who should they revolve around? We've heard the, the uncomplimentary statement about someone's arrogance. He thinks the world revolves around him. Or he thinks the, the universe, he's at the center of his universe, we might say about an arrogant person. At the center of of our solar system is the sun, right? All Everything else orbits around the sun. Without the proper relationship with the sun, our earth would be completely uninhabitable. You know, we live in what they call that Goldilocks position where it's not too hot and not too cold. If our earth were just a little bit further from the sun, it would be too cold to be for us to inhabit. If it were a little bit too close, we would be dying of heat instantly. And sadly, most religions in the world understand that it's not God that's in the center of our solar system. It's us. 
that man is in the center of his solar system and whatever the deity is that they worship, whatever the God it is that they worship, just like everything else, in all other religions, that God revolves around man. It, he orbits, it orbits around man. And, and the idea is to keep God in that perfect Goldilocks situation in which he's going to benefit me appropriately, but not, don't get him too close that he muddles too much with my life, that he meddles in there. Don't get him too far away that it might be too hard to get a hold of him, get him to do what it is that you want him to do. In a man-centered worldview... Man, we, I am in the middle, and everybody else, including God, is orbiting me. And through manipulation, I can either get them to pull close, or I can push them away as needed. Even more sadly, much of evangelical Christianity functions this way as well. Getting God to do what we want him to do, when we want him to do it, and just trying to keep him happy in between. Much of the teaching of Jesus that we're looking at here this morning is to correct this mindset. We continue on in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, starting in verse 7, where we read Jesus stating, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. If you recall from uh, last week, we, we looked at how easy it is and the danger that it is to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And Jesus looked specifically at how we might give or how we might pray or how we might uh, fast and, and, and separate ourselves from those things that we, that we need, that we depend on, not for the right reason of building our relationship with the Lord and walking in a relationship of dependence and worship of Him, but instead doing so so that other people will see what we are doing and think more highly of us. So, so Jesus was kind of targeting in the teaching we looked at last week and how da the danger it is to do the right things for the wrong reason of getting people to respect us more. Here we look at how it's possible for us and Jesus targets how even with something with prayer, we might do the right thing, but it's for the purpose of manipulating God. And it boils down to that idea of thinking it all revolves around me. Or the other word for it is man-centered. And this is our default. This is what all religions of the world, aside from biblical Christianity, fall into. Centered around me. Centered around the man. Centered around the, the worshiper getting the one that's being worshipped to do what they want them to do. And so then Jesus continues on into some statements that we are quite familiar with. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your 
will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we close this section with, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. First of all, I want to challenge you here this morning. Based on uh, how these verses relate to one another, reject a man-centered version of prayer. Reject that version of prayer that we see exampled for us in all of man's religiosity. A man-centered version of prayer. By man-centered, I mean as if we are in the center of our solar system. And everybody else, including God, is just supposed to orbit around us. This is what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the way the Gentiles do, the way the Gentiles pray. Gentiles would be non-Jewish. And, and for this point in time in biblical history, it, it, it's classified, classifying anyone who is living in a in a relationship with God that is not based on his steadfast covenant love. In other words, the, the Jewish people lived with, in a relationship with God based on his covenant with them as his covenant people. And those who know Christ as their Savior today, whether they be Jew or Gentile, are living in a relationship with God based on his covenant relationship with us in Christ. And so, as he says, as the Gentiles do, that, that, that would have meant for, for Jesus' hearers, non-Jews, as that could mean for us today, unbelievers, those who do not have a relationship with God. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. We see examples of this today in uh, Eastern religions. Maybe you've seen this before where in, in some uh, Buddhist temples or, or other places like this, they would, they would carve a prayer into a cylinder. And the simple idea is once that prayer is carved into that cylinder, you've got to know which cylinder you want to use, and then they'll sit there and their means of worship is to spin that cylinder. By doing so, it's sending one, that just multiple prayers out into the, to the cosmos. Or uh, maybe you've seen in some uh, Tibetan situations or, or, a, or a New Age type situation in the United States, you'd see a, a line of flags. It looks like somebody's doing their laundry or something. Um, uh, but the, the multiple colored uh cloths flapping in the wind and the idea is each of those flags represents a prayer and as the wind blows through them and they flap they're carrying out those prayers we got to manipulate the spirit world so get these prayers flapping one, one of the things that we saw in in uh it wasn't uncommon out in south dakota when we lived there is if you were in an area near a babbling brook or something like that 
or, or uh, in a sacred area like Bear Butte or something, you would see strips of cloth tied onto tree branches. Each of those strips of cloth supposedly represented someone's prayer. And it's like they're leaving it there that as the brook would carry by or as the wind would blow in it, the idea is kind of set it and forget it, right? Set that prayer and just kind of let it go to manipulate the spirits, to manipulate the deity. Honestly, we see this in some forms of evangelicalism where people think, as long as I don't say the wrong words and I say the right words, then the hope is that the wrong things won't come into being and the right things will come into being. Like we have the power to manipulate the spirit world by the specific words that we say. So, you know, I, it's kind of like pulling your wallet out and saying money, 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 money. But this is a belief. This is the foundation behind the idea of name it and claim it, speak it into existence. These are uh, fundamental animistic principles of power words, of... of um, Speaking things into being. I can remember, I shared this with you before, I lost, I lost it somewhere. I've received a nice paper rug in the mail somehow. You know, and it was like, lay this on the floor and make sure you got your knees on it when you pray. And pray whatever it is that you really, really want. And then put this prayer, prayer, paper prayer rug into an envelope with an amount of money. And send it back to us. And, and we promise whatever it is that you've prayed on this rug will come into being. Folks, this is man-centered theology. This is man-centered even evangelicalism. Where, where I am in the middle and as I want him to, I'm going to draw God because he orbits around me. If I can increase my gravitational pull my power, then I can draw God into my orbit and get him to do what I want him to do. And then when I'm done with that, then I just got to keep him happy so that he'll stay away. This is what Jesus is targeting, even as far back as 2,000 years ago. And he follows up this statement with, with, it's intended to explain his point. We know that by the, it starts with four. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. What do you think would be the common question that pops up into our minds after this statement? Then why pray? The, this question in our mind reveals our man-centered theology. Then what good is prayer? If he already knows it, what good is it? Jesus right here is saying, God's purpose for prayer is way outside of what we think of in our fallen mind. It's not about getting God to do what we want him to do. The question in our minds reveals our man-centered purpose of prayer when we ask, then why pray? Jesus lets us know that it's much more, much, much more than our small agendas 
we think we pray to have God do things or, or to let him in on what's going on around us. I appreciate what, how Albert Moeller puts it. Prayer is not about our informing God. It is rather about us coming into the presence of God in an attitude of prayer and honestly laying out our lives before him. That's very different than informing him of what we presume that he already, that he does not know. The fact is this, prayer doesn't change God as much as it changes us. Talking with God in prayer is an exercising of our relationship with God. Or as the New Bible Commentary puts it, true prayer is not a technique nor a performance, but a relationship. Jesus is basically telling us, don't be like the man-centered pagans that use prayer to try to manipulate God. It's about exercising your relationship with God. Not about getting him to do the stuff you want him to do or about impressing him. Do not use things like prayer wheels, mantras, prayer words, power prayers, etc. As if you can twist God's arm. He hears us because of Jesus. Because Jesus has opened the door for us and because the Holy Spirit is interceding us. We have far less power than we think we do. The fact is that God already knows what you're going to pray. So how you pray it doesn't sway him one way or the other. And if that discourages you from praying, you need to check your understanding of how much the situation depends on you. You depend on prayer for your relationship with God. Not for getting God to do things what you want him to that you want him to do. Real quickly, you know, you're familiar with this picture. The idea is that we were made for biblical worship. We were made to to take what God has given us and to offer it to him. As an offering of worship. And when our hearts are set on serving ourselves, I'm sorry, when our hearts are set correctly on serving God, then we see everything that we have as an opportunity to glorify him with it. We serve others, we, we uh, give, we, we pray, we praise for his glory. But when our hearts are set on serving ourselves, this is the way I wake up in the morning. In the morning, I don't know about you. This is what I have to constantly correct in my own heart. When our hearts are set on serving ourselves, we treat everything and everyone like a vending machine. Where we take out of our pockets what God has given us to, to, to use for his glory, and we plug it into that person or we plug it into that situation in the hopes that that thing is going to give us what we think we need. And what Jesus exposes in our hearts with the teaching here is that when we're living to serve ourselves, we treat God like a vending machine. All right, God, I've got 10 minutes here. I hope you're happy that I'm going to spend it with you. Maybe if I, you know, say things in the right way, maybe if I say it enough, maybe if I just, you know, totally give you this time 100%, I'm even going to turn my phone off. I hope you're happy with it. I hope maybe, you know, you get send something my way today. 
when we feel conviction about that, that is a blessing from the Lord that we can stop and say, Lord, please change my heart. Please change my heart in all areas. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. If our first thought and question, as I mentioned, is then why waste time in praying? This reveals more about us and our hearts. It reveals that our hearts need are set on serving ourselves rather than God. It reveals the opportunity to confess that to Him and for Him to change our hearts. And when our hearts are set on serving God, then we see prayer as an opportunity to bring Him glory. We'll be interested in participating in anything that brings him glory when our hearts are set on serving him. I want to just touch on something. This is how crazy people get in order to be able to believe that God revolves around us. This is how crazy people will get. We can get, even, even as evangelical Christians, we can get at the idea that we're not in control that we're not essentially in charge of our lives. I want to share with you uh, the idea of what uh, this doctrine called open theism. And this just comes from a great website called gotquestions.org, this definition. It should help you understand, and I just want to share with you just how crazy even we as evangelical Christians can get. Open theism is also known as openness theology or openness of God or free will theism. It's an attempt to explain the foreknowledge of God in relationship to the free will of man. The argument of open theism is essentially this. Human beings are truly free. If God absolutely knew the future, human beings could not truly be free. Therefore, God does not know absolutely everything about the future. Open theism holds that the future is not knowable. Therefore, God knows everything that can be known, but he does not know the future. And the reason why he doesn't know the future according to open theism is, well, we haven't had our say yet. And God would never affect what we would do. God would never transgress he would never trespass on my free will so how could he know the future because I haven't had my say let me share with you what I like to call letting God be God theism comes from Isaiah 46 8 through 10 where God tells us this do not forget this keep it in mind remember this you guilty ones remember the things I have done in the past For I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. That comes from Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Like I said, That's what I like to call letting God be God theism. So back to our passage here this morning. While we reject a man-centered version of prayer, Jesus teaches us to also be God-centered in how we talk to God. 
He says, pray then. So this is in direct contrast to the way, as he says, the Gentiles pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now, next week, we're going to spend time focusing on just this model of prayer that Jesus gives us. Today, we're looking at it in relationship, in context with uh, the other teachings that he's giving here for us to see what he's teaching overall is a God-centered way that we should be praying. But for this week, let's notice how it relates to these verses. And instead of praying in a way that's motivated by our thinking, how our prayer can maybe sway God. We're to center ourselves on who God is and what He desires to do. And from that point, we are to beseech Him for what we need. As one writer says, the prayer, the, this prayer embraces the whole scope of the outworking of God's purpose. But its focus is not either present or future, but on God himself, whose glory must be the disciples' first and deepest concern before they consider their own needs. In other words, we are to be God-centered, recognizing. We don't make him the center of our solar system, recognizing that he is in the center of the so our solar system. And we are wise, living in a saving relationship with God. We are wise to live in a way that we recognize that we and everything else in this life orbit around him. And as we pray in the fashion that Jesus taught us, God is going to remind us really quick, it is not about you. That is the blessing of this prayer to us, to be reminded it is not about us. <clears throat> Jesus is basically telling us, talk to God as your perfect father. He knows and loves you better than your unearthly father ever could. He's your heavenly father, meaning that he is the absolute source and ruler of all. Make God's glory your chief desire and the focus of your prayer. Allow prayer to conform you to God's will and the goals of his kingdom. And intercede for God's glory on this earth in order to join in with him in his purposes in our time. Look to God for what you need. Look to him as the source of your provision. Asking him to supply your physical needs. Look to him to restore your fellowship with him through confessing your sin to him. But don't expect God to restore your fellowship with him as his forgiven child if you aren't forgiving others yourself. Think of a, a watchtower guard that is appointed by the king himself <clears throat> to sit in the watchtower and keep an eye over the court that is outside of the castle. And the king tells him, this important position, being so close to my castle, 
It is important enough that you have anything to report to me about my kingdom, about concerns or, or things that I should be rejoicing in about my kingdom. Come and tell me. And my door is always open for your reports. What if the watchtower guard keeps coming in and says, hey, so you told me your door is always open to me, right? Yes, absolutely. What do you have to tell me? Could you send me some coffee and a donut? I mean, because it's really like I'm getting hungry up there. King's like, that's not exactly what the idea was, you know. Next time he comes in, he says, I've got some really cool statistics for you on the color of people's shirts on certain days of the week. The king is like, wait, you're out there for my kingdom. You're out there for my purposes. Next time he comes in, I've got a list of people that I really think you should banish. The king is really, you know, obviously it's like, this guy doesn't get it. Next time he comes in, I've just been wondering, why on earth would you put somebody as important as me in a dumb job like this? Really? Prayer is where our relationship with God is revealed. And this is as much for me, folks, here this morning as it is for you. It is where our relationship with God is revealed. It It is about him, not about us. Prayer is, and also our relationship with him, is to be about him and not about us. It's about accomplishing his will and about, not about accomplishing our will. Let me ask you this. Does your prayer life show, does it, for all of us, does it show that we're depending on him for our daily needs? Or are we just covering those ourselves, those daily needs ourselves? Is it possible that our relationship with God is muddled because of unforgiveness in our hearts? I think what Jesus, is tell, Jesus tells us here is very possible. In fact, he, he goes on to further explain that statement. When he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I want to challenge you here from this, this morning, from these verses 14 and 15. Be grace-centered in your relationships with others. As we are God-centered in our relationship with God, we will be grace-centered in our relationship with others, I believe. Jesus is explaining, again, this, this is for the reason why verse 14 starts with four. He's explaining why the statement of his model prayer at the beginning, prior, just prior to this, is dependent on how we relate to those who we think owe us, who we think have a debt toward us. <clears throat> when he speaks about forgiving and God forgiving us, this is not describing the moment that a believer has Christ's righteousness credited to him or her. This is not explaining, the, the as we like to talk in terms of forgiveness of our sins, when we become believers, when we become followers of Christ, recognizing that my sin, like, I, I became a follower of Christ. 
a, a child of God, when I recognized that my sin had been laid on Christ so that he might pay the penalty for my sin rather than I having to pay the penalty for my own sin. And I recognize that God is offering me the righteousness of Christ in place of my sin so that I might be, have a saving relationship with God rather than a relationship with him in which he is my judge. He can be my father. And so uh, simply <clears throat> what it was reflected like in my life is telling the Lord, Lord, all I have is sin. But it was laid on Christ. Will you take what Christ did for me and apply it to me? Will you take the righteousness of Christ and apply it to my account so that I might know you as my father? That moment of what we, that's kind of like where we see ourselves as being forgiven of our sins, where that penalty had been lifted off of us as it had already been placed onto Christ, that is not what is being spoken about here in terms of your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is speaking of, as, as John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's speaking to believers in how... We need to experience that regular exercise of that forgiveness. We need to experience that regular confession of our sin. Not that our relationship with God, I'm sorry, not that our position as the child of God is dependent on our regular confession of sin, but our fellowship, our ability to enjoy, our ability to walk regularly in relationship with God as our Father, unhindered, is dependent on our confessing our sin to him and experiencing his forgiveness of that sin. So in the same way, it's not only dependent on our confession of sin, it is also dependent on our willingness to forgive others, is what Jesus is telling us here. It's the type of situation that the psalmist writes about in Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity, if I had held on to sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Our very prayers themselves are hindered by our unwillingness to confess our sin, to confess our unforgiveness towards others, to be willing our unwillingness to forgive others in our hearts for how they have sinned against us. It affects our day-to-day fellowship with the Lord. It affects, it hinders our prayers. Or as Warren Wiersbe says, God does not forgive us because we forgive others, but on the basis of the blood of Christ. However, an unforgiving spirit will hinder a prayer life and show that a person has no understanding of the grace of God. It's similar to if, if a son were to, to get in trouble with his dad for smacking his sister on the head, right? And then it's one of those things of like, okay, who hit who first? 
And when there's something, you know, it's like, son, I've got a problem here. You smacked your sister on the head. And then the son says, well, she smacked me first. Now there's a big relational, you know, there's a, like a relational triangle problem going on here. Does, does that son no longer be, is it like, well, you're not going to be my son until you make this right. You need to make this right with me, and you need to make this right with your sister. No. That doesn't make him no longer the child of that father. In the same way, when we have a relationship with God through Christ, unforgiveness is not going to dislodge us from being in relationship with him. But like that situation, it's like, son, we've got a problem here. You smacked my daughter. What's going to fix that situation is for the son to say, I'm sorry that I smacked your daughter. The wise father is also going to say, do you think you can forgive my daughter for smacking you? This is essentially what we're told. Can we you understand grace here? That just as you have been forgiven, that you should be forgiving others? So there's a celebration of our relationship with God that we can stand in by faith. And it comes by confessing and being washed in his forgiveness of our current sins. Jesus is basically telling us here, this is how it works. Your ongoing relationship with God, walking in his grace, is affected by the grace and the forgiveness that you are willing to show to others. God is ready to remove any barrier that's between us and full fellowship with him. But to hold a grudge with others short circuits our opportunity. To walk in that full fellowship with him. It short circuits that opportunity to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Can be another way of describing it. Corey Ten Boone experienced this. Corey Ten Boone who, who went to the horrible concentration camp during World War II of Ravensbrück. Went there with her, her sister. Lost her sister there. Lost her father there. Lost other members of her family there. But after World War II was over, she was used mightily by the Lord to speak around the world of her experiences, but especially to speak in Germany to the German people. And she explains one time when she was speaking in Munich, in 1947, to Germans, expressing to them the message of God's forgiveness. And she specifically said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. She talks about how solemn faces simply stared back over at her, unable to understand this. But one person did understand it. It was a man in a gray coat, heavy set, who came up to, to greet her afterwards. And as soon as she saw them, him, she recognized him as one of her guards at Ravensbrook, even though he didn't recognize her. She remembered his brutality. She remembered his whippings. She remembered how demoralized she was before this man. 
And as he came up to her, he said, Fräulein, I am so glad to know that because I have trusted Christ as my Savior, all of the evil that I had done has been forgiven, that it was cast into the sea. He says, I know that God has forgiven me, but I wonder, could you also forgive me? And as he stuck out his hand, she talks about how she, she sits there fumbling with her purse. She said it was probably only seconds, but it felt like hours that I was standing there staring at that hand. She says, I knew that God had told us if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will my, your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. She, she talked about, I know that not just as a commandment, but as a daily experience. As she uh, had a home for victims of the Nazi brutality. She said over and over again, we, we, we taught them that you must forgive. She saw how those who had forgiven were able to go from there and lead uh, productive and, and, and joyful lives. And those who would not forgive and that nursed their bitterness, just became invalids and unable to function in the rest of their life. So she says, so I stood there in the coldness, clutching my, with coldness, clutching my heart. She says, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. And she prayed there as she stood there with his hand struck, stuck, stretched out. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So she says, so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. A current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. She says, for a long moment we grasped each other's hands. A former guard and a former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. She goes on to say, I have, and having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each Guys, prayer, confession of unforgiveness, as well as confession of any sin that we're aware of, it's an opportunity to enjoy God again. It's an opportunity to draw close to Him as we and our world revolves around Him. We have a saying, mess with me once, Shame on you. Mess with me twice. Shame on me. God's, God has a saying that, as I mentioned, is basically summed up by our passage this morning. It's not about you. 
It's not about me. Prayer is not supposed to be about getting God to be about us. What we pray about is is supposed to be about accomplishing God's will, furthering His kingdom. And we're to be experiencing and granting the grace of God, not allowing anyone's offenses to fester in our heart. And when by God's grace we can do that, when God's grace we can forgive, we get to enjoy His grace all the sweeter. Let's bow our heads. Father God, I pray for freedom. For freedom for myself and freedom for my brothers and sisters here. To be able to recognize that anything that has been done to us has been paid for by your son. To release anyone's debt that is owed to us so that we might be able to enjoy you more. And Lord God, I pray that you would help us to include ourselves in that as well. To forgive ourselves of those things that we know have been paid for on your cross. To see ourselves even through the nail scars in your hands. Lord, I pray that you would bless us by allowing our lives, allowing us to understand that our lives rotate around you. Bless us with the opportunity to, to think about ways that, and areas that we can just give more and more over to you for your glory, Lord. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.